Good morning. You might be relieved I'm only reading one chapter. When I looked at the front, it was Job chapter 1 to 42. But we are only reading from chapter 38. And it's after a whole lot of dialogue between Job and his friends. And we're going to read when God finally speaks. So Job chapter 38, reading verses 1 to 18. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a a measuring line across it? Or what were its footing set, or who laid its cornerstone, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the cloud its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and the upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Let's pray. Father, open your word and teach us humility today. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was about 19 or 20, quite a young fella in my perspective, I had a friend invited me to go away on a weekend with him with some of his mates. And uh, we left on Friday. We drove south. I remember driving through Berry. Then we turned right somewhere and hit a country road. And then we hit a dirt road and we kept on driving and we pulled over. The road got very narrow. We might have gone through a gate or two. Then we pulled over in this clearing, it's dark by now, and we set up just flyovers and we slept under these flyovers that Friday night. Woke up early in the morning with massive flies buzzing past us, got our gear together, packed up our stuff and started walking up. And we walked up and up and up and up. We were in the Butterwang Ranges past Berry at the back of Nara. I'd never been there, never heard of the place. We went up and up, we walked up the castle we walked up this place called Mount Owen. I think this photo's taken from the castle. I was blown away. This was incredible. This was so big. It was so vast. And I remember standing on a rocky outcrop and looking at all the space and glory below me and ahead of me and feeling so small. 
me who had conquered the mountain. And feeling a sense of the greatness and majesty and awe of the Creator. It was a memorable, memorable moment in my life. An encounter with God in a sense. God in His unapproachability, His fascination with this Creator, this fear and yet this attraction of the one who could make all this and somehow a sense that I was important that important enough to be loved or cared for but overwhelmed and small. It was a frightening yet comforting moment to be so in touch with the God of creation. Little me on the rock. And I think most of you have had experiences like that somewhere. In a remote place, looking at the night sky, the vastness of the Milky Way above you, stars innumerable, such a vast universe. Maybe you've had that experience looking at your child sleeping being overwhelmed by this sense of love and protection and beauty. You say, did I create that? And the answer is, no, I didn't create that. You reach out and you almost touch God. In fear and awe and majesty, or maybe you've had it even in moments of sadness. This is crazy. This is mad. And yet, in that madness, in that craziness, there's. I just reach out and touch the awesome sovereign. Because it just doesn't make any sense. My life, my existence, my being, my sadness, my emptiness. These moments of awe never last. We return to trains and traffic and deadlines. Where I am master of my destiny, I am in the fight, I am wrenching control and we forget. We deceive ourselves. See, the greater truth is found in those moments of awe. We are not in control. We are dependent We are small. Creation is vast. The universe is immense. And there is a creator much, much bigger. Let's call him God. And he is awesome and he is fearful and he is glorious and he is fascinating and he is in control. And this odd sense that actually we can know this creator despite our teeny-weeny little existence, we can know the one who made it all. Because God is God and because we are creature, the only fitting response, the basic natural response to God is kind of what I felt on that rocky outcrop. It, it's, it's a response of humility of abasement, of emptiness. Humility, 
which is really a right assessment of ourselves in the light of the majesty and holiness and glory of God, the Creator. A right assessment of ourselves that then leads to different behaviour towards the world and others. That is humility. But our hearts, rather than taking what is the obvious response, bend themselves always towards pride, which is the lie of the Satan, which is the first sin, which is the primary sin, that I am king, that I am the centre, that it's all about me. And I am actually the best. I'm king. I'm king over the valley, I say on my rocky outcrop. I'm king of the world. Look at how high I've climbed. This year, as I've said, we are doing battle with the devil. We are doing battle with sin. We are taking as our theme that we would walk humbly with our God. And that would be expressed in our service, in our prayer, and in our praise. This, is, you see, this, this theme this year is not a minor theme. It's not just another Christian virtue. We could have picked kindness. We could have picked patience. Yeah, we could have. But they are not as fundamental as this matter of humility, which is fundamental, which is the heartbeat virtue of all others. It's a mindset of life. And it's essential if we are to be the people God calls us to be. It's essential if we are to be a church that is the body of Christ, if we are to be people like Jesus, our Lord. Humility. And so today we begin a series of talks kicking off the year on this topic of humility. And we're starting with probably one of the, probably the oldest, certainly one of the hardest, most intriguing and obscure parts of the Bible. Quite a long book, the book we call Job, which is about suffering. We'll hear people say, but you know, really? You know, I'm not sure it is about suffering because the question of suffering and why do we suffer and why does Job suffer never really gets answered despite 42 chapters. The book of Job, you see, I'm convinced, is 42 chapters of a man named Job, a humble man named Job, doing now an advanced diploma in God's school of humility. And it's a tough school, but it's a good school. It's a bit like boot camp. Come along, boys, guys, please. We're going to start at the beginning. Oh, I know time's getting on, so here's, here's see how we go. Job chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright, he feared God and he shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. He had the lot. He had family. He had fun. He had wealth. He had power and he was humble. Incredible man. Even God could boast of Job. Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. 
Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You're protecting him. You're looking after him special. You have blessed the works of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And so God allowed Satan to have his way. He loosened him up and Job lost everything. Everything, family, wealth, everything. You know, you say these things that you have, these good things, they don't own you, really? Well, Job was tested. Chapter 1, verse 20. And Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What a man. What a humble man. But Satan comes and says, I want more. Yeah. He, you haven't struck his body. You haven't made him physically suffer. You haven't given him pain on the outside. Chapter 2, verse 9, So Satan went and gave him pain, sores all over. And we read in chapter nine, 2, verse 9, His wife said to Job, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. What a man. He's humble. And he says, God is God and I am creature. He has three friends who come to comfort him. Chapter 2, verse 13. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads and they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights and no one said a word to Job because they saw how great his suffering was. You see, they're not in control. They're all humbled. They're empty. They're abased. And they sit. And after seven days, Job begins to speak. He's trying to process in his words. He's trying to make sense of everything that's happened to the despair around him. And his mate Eliphaz speaks up first and says, Job, Job, you've done wrong, mate. You've sinned, it's, it's, it's deserved from the hand of God. And Job says, really? All of this suffering because I've sinned? He says, no, no, God's against me. God is against me. And, and his mates, they come back one after the other and they say, Job, a little bit stronger. Job, you've, you've done this because you deserved it. This has happened. And Job feels innocent, but he also, in a sense, agrees. So in chapter 9, verse 4, Job says, God's wisdom is profound, his power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it. He overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and these stars and constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed. Yes, God is God. And Job is humble. And yet Job wishes there in that same chapter, chapter 9, verse 32, 
He says, he is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. Like I can't talk to God. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, me and God. Someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it stands now with me, I, I can't, I cannot, I can't speak against God. The discussion develops. And as it goes on, Job gets bolder in his challenges to his friends and to God. And his friends also get bolder in their statements. Listen, Job, it is your fault. Have a look at yourself, Job. Honestly, you're only getting what you deserve. I'm not as bad as you say. In fact, who makes you guys judge and jury? Chapter 12. Job said, doubtless you are the only people who matter and wisdom will die with you. But I have a mind as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things? I have become a laughing stock to my friends. Though I called on God and he answered, I have become a mere laughing stock, though I was righteous and blameless. The respectful discussion they started slowly begins to become a big ding-dong dispute between Job and his three mates. Chapter 13, verse 1. Job says to his friends, My eyes have seen all this. My ears have heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. Do I dis- but I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. You, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. Like I've had a gutful of you blokes, just let me talk to God. You useless people. Eliphaz, his mate, comes back in chapter 15. Would a wise person answer with empty notions? Or fill their belly with the hot east wind? Would they argue with useless words, with speeches that have no value? But you even undermine piety and you hinder devotion to God. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, Job. Your own lips testify against you. Verse 7, are you the first man ever born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Did you listen in on God's counsel? Do you have a monopoly on wisdom? What do you know, Job, that we do not know? What insights do you have that we do not have? The grey-haired and the aged are on our side. Men even older than your father agree with us, Job. Everybody, here's the fascinating thing as I see it, everybody's telling the truth. You can go and find arguments in the scripture for what everybody says, what Job says, what his friends say. Every one of them is right in their own eyes, but the problem with Job and his friends is they're all of them puffing themselves up with self-righteous pride. Job challenges in chapter 16. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on 
arguing. And then he starts to make his arguments more direct. This is God's fault. I want to speak with God. I've had a gut full of you blokes. 23 verse 1. Job said, Even today my complaint is bitter and his hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. Would he vigorously oppose me, this God? No, he would not press charges against me. There the upright can establish their innocence before him and there I would be delivered forever from my judge. But if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I don't find him. Job speaks his mind. He takes his challenge to God, just like the prophets often did, just like David often did in his Psalms. God can handle our direct challenge, but not if we do it with self-exalting pride. You're wrong. I should be in control. You have stuffed up. This isn't right. I'm going to hold you to account. This big discussion ends in a stalemate. Chapter 32. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakal, the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with his th- the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job, Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he was. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. And so in chapter 32 we get a long speech from this new character, a young man named Elihu. The last speech of the men and really the most measured speech of all of them. Elihu challenges Job, he challenges his three friends and he exalts God's justice and God's greatness and righteousness. The youth, the young man, the one to be ignored, speaks over and above the pride of the wise old men. And Elihu finishes his speech in this way in chapter 37. I'm quoting from the ESV. I prefer this translation. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice and abundant abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. God hates the proud and he is great and mighty. He does not listen to you guys in your pride. Job is corrected by a young man. But the story is not yet over because Job, remember, demanded an audience with God. So actually the last speech, Job gets what he asked for. God has the final word in four chapters. You want answers, Job? You want to hold me to account, Job? Okay, let's talk. Christine read the start of that speech. I'll read a bit of it for you again. Chapter 38. 
the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and he said, Who is this who obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Who is this that darkens and muddies what I am doing when you don't know what you're talking about? Brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you will answer me. Were you there when I laid the earth's foundations? Job, were you there? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off the earth's dimensions? Surely you know, Job. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footing set or who laid its cornerstones? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Surely, Job, you know all this stuff. Mr. Smarty? Mr. Exalted? Who shut up the sea behind its doors? Or who made it burst forth from the womb? Who set the doors and bars in place that the sea could go no further? Who gave orders to the morning? Job, he, the Lord goes on, do you control the weather, Job? Do you control the movement and passage of the stars? Job, do you control the wild animals and all their goings on in nature? Are you Lord of nature so that everything bows to your will and purpose? Chapter 39, verse 26. Does the hawk take flight, Job, by your wisdom and spread its wings towards the south? Does the eagle soar at your command, Job, and build its nest on high? Are you boss of these things, Job? Do you understand? Do you know? Chapter 40, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer. And Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. And then the Lord spoke to Job again out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man, Job. I will question you and you will answer me. We're not letting you off just yet, Job. Would you discredit my justice? Would you say I am unjust? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? If so, then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty and you, Job, you unleash the fury of your wrath and you look at all who are proud and you bring them low. And look at all who are proud and you humble them and crush the wicked where they stand, Job. Come on. You want to fix things up? Bury them in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then, you do that, Job, then I will admit to you, myself, that you are right, that your own right hand can save you. Yes, Job, do all that and you can save yourself. I'll admit that. Are you saviour? Can you execute justice? He goes on in his speech to the powerful, fearful, almost spiritual beasts bow to your will. Job, are you God? Are you? Insert your name. John, are you God? Are you? Really? Are you really in control? God speaks and Job listens. 
And Job is learned because he listens and he is changed. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. You said, listen now and I will speak and I will question you and you shall answer me. But my ears have heard you, but my ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And so we come to the end of this great debate, 42 chapters. Job repents. Job turns from his folly. Job admits his pride, his sin, and he humbles himself under the majesty and glory of God. I am not God. I am not wise. I do not understand. I am creature. You are creator. And now I've seen you and you are my God. I submit to you. Job is what we call part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Job, the wise man, is really learning true wisdom, which is humility because God is God. Job's friends are rebuked in their pride and Job is restored after his repentance to greater honour the great man, schooled in humility, becomes even greater as it will be for everyone who learns humility, who submits to God as God. And so we have here one of the longest books in the Old Testament, I believe, given over fundamentally to this one lesson. Humility, because God is God. That is wisdom. Humility matters. Learn humility because God is God. And those moments of war that I spoke about earlier, those moments of truth will always be moments of humility. They will be moments when God is speaking to us. Will we listen? You and I are caught up in something far greater, someone far greater who holds this whole universe, including our lives, in his hands. And from my rock perch in the butterwings, it is folly to think that I am conqueror, that I rule the valley below. And looking at my sleeping child, it is folly to think that I am creator, and that I possess this life. I am not king. Job saw, Job heard. He had a massive moment of awe, more than he asked for or expected. And he was changed, and he was abased, and he was humbled. You know, the living God has been revealed to us more than even to Job in that great story. The Word became flesh. 
the wisdom of God came amongst us and we have beheld his glory as the one from the one and only Father, full of grace and truth. On the 7th of January, really almost to start this year in this theme, Johnny spoke from Philippians chapter 2 about the Lord Jesus Christ who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto but made himself nothing taking on the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. There is humility from God himself. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name that we're all going to bow before Jesus. That his journey was one of abasement for others. Paul is writing to a church like our church that's relatively healthy and he's urging them to more humility. See, before he tells us about Jesus, he says this, these words here, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility Value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. By the end of this year, I would like you all to learn those words and to be able to parrot them off without thinking. I'm hoping we'll have some kids' talks where we'll keep going through those verses. I'm hoping you'll get sick of those verses. I'm hoping they will be embedded on our soul and spirit by the end of 2018. We've had the example set in Jesus. And gee, it makes a difference. What place is humility playing in your fight? At work? At home? Who are you fighting with? Where's the tension? Where's the anxiety? Where's the stress? And what role is God's call to humility playing in that? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord that he may lift you up. That's the promise. That's the consistent promise of Scripture. That we might be a church. Here we are. Here am I expressing my frustration with our journey with Lidcombe Barella. As if we have all the answers, friends. Oh, we struggle week after week. Humble ourselves. That he might lift us up. Humility because God is God. Let me pray. Father, we ask with courage that you would school us in your school of humility. Father, we don't really want an advanced diploma like Job got, but we do want joy in you. And so we ask that you would humble us for your glory. In Jesus we pray. Amen.